second we get into this idea of what a just king would look like, as we get into this idea of what um, it is that this good news actually is for us this Christmas, we have to sometimes step away from tradition. So we've actually stripped down the TV scene quite back from what was there in the beginning. We had the Christmas tree all over, we had the presents all over, we had the tinsel all over. What, is, what does it mean when we, we want to strip this back? Last week we had Ian talking to us about this idea of a radiating baby, a radioactive Jesus. Um, and we sort of come to Jesus with this sense that he is this, and you know, we carry all of this, Jesus is just too big, I can't deal with this, but actually, I like this Jesus that we have here. This plain, humble Jesus. And I want to introduce this Jesus to you this morning as we go through today. Um, and just to get us in the mood and to make plain the traditions that we carry, um, I've got a clip just to get us in the mood while I settle into what I've got written here. Um, I hope you enjoy this uh, that I found this week. Then count on children's table. Mm-hmm. Then on children's table with other children. If you're going to sit on the children's table, you've got to do no fighting, no pinching of going up drinks, and no swearing. Do you understand? We're going to trust you. Trust me? Yeah. You're going to trust me? Yes. Can I ask you another question about the Bible? Yes, it doesn't matter. King Herod, just out of order, killed when he did, right? Right, that's a good thing. Well, why didn't baby Jesus that? to the side for a bit, 
because we've had all the work done for us in our theology. We've had, we've got the internet, we can look it up, we can do all this. But back in the early 300s, they didn't know anything about um, how it could possibly be that God could do these things for us. So they had to do all this hard work. Unfortunately, by that time, Christianity spread all across the Mediterranean. So we had Rome, we had uh, Antioch, we had Constantinople, we had Africa, and all of these bishops weren't able to talk to each other and easily as what we are today. And so there was huge amounts of division and disagreement about all this. It's important to recognise that we carry this baggage with us um, as we look at this virgin birth, as we look at this uh, baby in a manger, as we look at this angel uh, with heavenly hosts uh, behind. So just remember that. We're going to put that off to the side for this morning. Um, and we're going to actually look at the true purpose of this gospel. We're going to look at the purpose of the gospel of Luke as it is. You've got to remember, Luke was written to really uncover Jesus' true um, ministry audience. Because Jesus wasn't here just for the Jews, as the book of Matthew was written for them. It was actually written for everyone. And so Luke has this two-part series. Luke is not just Luke, but actually it's Luke and Acts. So we have to remember that as well. And Luke's primary audience, Jesus' ministry, is to the outcasts. Jesus' ministry is to those who are religiously unfit. I like that idea, religiously unfit. You know, have I run in a while? No, actually, I'm carrying a little bit around the midsection. I haven't been to church in a while. Maybe I'm religiously unfit. So Jesus' ministry to the outcasts, those religiously unfit, the poor and the women. And we can see that this is part of God's good news for the people. And this is what we're looking at, the good news. The good news of Christ's incarnation, coming in the flesh. Incarnate. Incarnate, if you're Spanish. What's the translation, incarnate? Oh, in the, yeah, in the flesh. Incarnate. Yeah, incarnate in Spanish. Yeah, so that actually comes from the Latin. Um, I always think about it in the meat, because when it, my wife's Argentinian, so... We just talk about carne all the time, in the meat. I want to be in the meat. Anyway, never mind. Um, eat. eat meat. In, eat the meat. Eat the meat. Don't, don't get into the meat. That would be weird. But I don't want to do that. Anyway, um, in the flesh. So here we go. Um, Jesus in the flesh to the Jews and the Gentiles as well. Included in this gift. God showing up to be with them too. Um, and we have this story in Luke 2. The shepherds. This group of unrighteous people, this group of farmers, and realistically these shepherds are probably up on a hillside, they're not going to be anywhere near the temple. But realistically, the sheep that they're growing are probably going to be used for sacrifice in the temple. So, they're doing things for the temple, and yet they would be excluded from the outside just because they weren't able to fit in with general society as they did that. So here, in Luke 2, instead of this radioactive glowing baby that the early church fathers developed in their theology for us, we have instead this down-to-earth family and we have this down-to-earth practice of faith and faithfulness. We've got Zechariah, Elizabeth, we've got Mary, Joseph, doing things full of faith and we've got then the shepherds who, they're not like those first four people that we meet in Luke 1 and 2. The shepherds, are they religiously fit? Because Zechariah and Elizabeth were. Mary Joseph, well, they followed through, they were considered faithful. But the shepherds, we don't get that comment about them. And so we get this picture of Jesus coming 
in being met in that way. And in fact, actually, the simple and homely birth of Jesus is probably part of the reason for the derision by the rest of the Romans. So the Roman world would absolutely hate this. We've got the saviour of Rome, which would be the emperor. And we've uh, Ian's gone through and given us uh, text on that previously, that actually everybody would consider the emperor the saviour of Rome. And so we have this picture, once again, of prophecy working in advance. People already ready to receive a saviour because it's been put in there by the culture of the Romans. And yet, this culture of a saviour being born not into a place of comfort, as we all would be said here, and we go, gee, that looks comfortable, I'd love to sleep in that right now. Instead, what we get is not that, but... So the Jews and the Romans, they have this interesting idea. You've got this saviour that's going to do everything, but actually it's an authoritarian saviour. And if you didn't like it, the Romans would get you. But this saviour provides the peace, and this saviour provides the robes, and he provides the army, and all the rest of that. And you've got this Jewish people that are sitting in this oppression, in a sense, knowing that actually this isn't who a saviour is meant to be. This is not the saviour that we're looking for. There's something more. And so they're looking forward to this something more, and they want to see it. So let's actually find out why, why do they want this saviour? Where is that embedded? How did that come to their culture that they're waiting for this true saviour? If you flick across to Isaiah 61, we'll see. This cultural desire for this new saviour is outlined for us here in 61. And this was 700 years before Jesus. The Jewish people were waiting on this Saviour, waiting on this person. And Jesus himself quotes this in Luke chapter 2. This is the good news that the angels were proclaiming up on the mountain. This new peace, this new Saviour, this new anointed one, this new Messiah has finally come. The one that the Jews were looking for, not this stand-aside emperor from Rome in authority now. This is how it works. I've got another clip that's going to help us get through this Isaiah 61 passage. This is from the Bible Project. I've just taken the bits that we need. So um, it doesn't skip, but it, you know, it's, I've taken a little section out of it. Quick flip up this Isaiah 61 passage. Isaiah is the first of three major prophets in the Bible. And in Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet offers a vision of a restored world where the land is full of abundance and full of right relationships between people. The final lines of the poem describe Israel as a new garden of Eden. For as the land brings out its sprouts, and as a garden makes sprout its seed plants, so the Lord Yahweh will make sprout righteousness and praise before all the nations. That sounds great, but Israel at this time has been conquered and ruled 
by another human. They've been reduced to a powerless nation full of grief and mourning. But among those mourning Israelites, there was a small group that never lost hope in God's promise. And so this poem is written to encourage that group of people. It begins, the spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me. So the speaker calls himself the anointed, from the Hebrew word, Mashiach. Mashiach, that's where we get the word Messiah. Yeah, exactly. And this Messiah says that through God's spirit, he's going to bring seven acts of new creation. The first is to bring good news to the oppressed, and then to bind up the brokenhearted, and then to release captives and those who are bound up. Liberation. And then right at the center of these seven acts, the Messiah says that he will proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. This is a reference to an ancient Israelite practice, the year of Jubilee. Oh right, Jubilee. It's meant to happen every seven times seven years, where everything resets. Slaves and prisoners gain freedom, all debts are canceled, families receive back their ancestral land. Yeah, this radical practice is a sign that points forward to the renewed creation, like the cosmic Jubilee. So, why is the Jubilee also called a day of vengeance? Well, if you set everything right, that involves reversing everything that's wrong. And for those who benefit from oppression or from unjust social arrangements, the cosmic jubilee might feel more like retribution than restoration. It all depends on how you respond to the cosmic judge. Now, back to the list. For those who are being oppressed, this day will bring comfort to those who mourn. That's the fifth act. And then the last two acts describe how the Messiah will give these people new clothes. New clothes? Why clothes? Well, not just any clothes, priestly garments. There's a crown like turban, garments of praise, and then anointing oil. Like the oil used to anoint the Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah is duplicating himself, clothing a crew of anointed ones who are going to share his mission to spread the life of the new Eden. In fact, look at the next thing that he says about them. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh for a display of beauty. That's a beautiful image. It is, just like the garden imagery the poem began with. <coughs> And this takes us into the middle section of the poem, which is all about the role that these anointed ones will have in the world, to bring restoration. And they will build the ruins of old. They will reestablish the former deserted places, and they will renew the devastated cities, the deserted places of many generations. These anointed ones are the rebuilders of creation. And that brings us to the garden image at the end that we read back at the beginning. Oh right, a garden that's sprouting seed plants. And notice this is no ordinary garden. The plants are sprouting righteousness. Righteousness means right relationships between people. And so the new creation will be a garden of renewed relationships among all of the nations. Our mission at Bible Project is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Good. Thanks, Dave. And so we get this picture of what they were waiting for all this while. And so today I want, I want us to focus on three words. I want us to focus on radioactive or radiation, no. Celebration, yes. Incarnation, yes. Radiation, celebration, incarnation. And you see each of these pictures, it's not just a radioactive Jesus that they would have shoot laser beams at hippopotamuses or Harry. But actually, in fact, you've got a true celebration 
for what is right and fair. You know, my kids in the morning. No, you said this. No, you said this. No, you said no, no, no. What's right and fair comes through. What does vengeance look like? Well, actually, vengeance looks like justice. A beautiful picture. And we've seen this before with Psalm 72. We've seen it before. Uh, again, when we get down to the seeds at the bottom of this passage, that's in Psalm 72 as well. So I'd encourage you through the week, come back and have a look at Psalm 72. Come back and have a look at Psalm 61. Because this is actually what we're looking at. This is what we're celebrating when Christ comes. To proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release darkness for the prisoners, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, this jubilee, the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. So this is what those angels were proclaiming. So let's actually get into Luke 2. We haven't done it. Let's get to verse by verse. Not verse by verse. We'll just jump through. All right. So we've got to remember the historical context of Isaiah. We've got to remember uh, our own context of our baggage that we carry. And now we want to reaffirm that message that actually Luke has written to a people for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring back in those that are religiously unfit. The shepherds, due to their work commitment, they're probably not able to join in all the normal religious participation. This is probably, uh, what are we at? Shepherds, verse 8, something. What does this mean for our FIFO workers, those that are unable to come to church? Are they, do they get to consider themselves religiously unfit? How, does we, how do we view them as a church? How do we engage with them as a culture? That they were watching the flocks at night probably means that there was a warmer season, which means that nighttime was the only relief from the sun, which means that actually that's the northern hemisphere, which means probably Christmas is meant to be in the middle of the year. Jesus' birth was probably meant to be in the middle of the year. So there shouldn't be any snow in our nativity scene, so we actually got that right. What else have we got here? Uh, heavenly host. Let's jump to verse 10. Uh, it's not the end of Gabriel this time, but this is the first glimpse of something supernatural to those that would ordinarily not be considered spiritual. Um, once again, this idea that actually I'm not religiously fit and yet something spiritual can happen to me. I love the idea in verse 13. You've got this uh, angelic host. That word host actually can be translated as army. The angelic army. This is the breaking through of God's kingdom into the world. And the shepherds are absolutely right to be fearful in verse 10. Um, think back to Isaiah 61, the coming vengeance. This is an angel that could absolutely this is an angel army that could absolutely do that. Um, but it's interesting, who brings the vengeance? Actually it's Christ that brings the vengeance. Is it our place to bring the vengeance? Is it the angels that bring the vengeance? No, actually, it's the king's place. The king is the one that will judge. And so there's a distinction for us here between um, good and godly justice. And then we've got what today's version of justice is here in our own context, in our own culture. Uh, you know, maybe we've got capitalism with a little bit of authoritarianism mixed in. Um, you know, as Christians, we might be tempted, oh, we're going to pick up the sword, and we're going to be the righteous ones. But actually, Jesus, as he grows older, he deals with that. He says, those who are the sword, die by the sword. Um, instead, we actually have to remember here, hang on a second, 
at his disposal, even when he was in that form, there is an entire angel of army, an entire angel army that can deal with the problems that God wants to deal with. And so therefore actually is it our problem or is it our place to pick up those things and fight? Or actually do we need to turn back to God uh, to deal with the things that we see as not right? What I want to do in verse 13 and 14 is just emphasise the humility that we see there. This Christ, the Messiah, Christ the Lord, this is the only time these words are put together in this way. Um, this is how the Saviour is to be known, this humble Saviour. Per Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, this is how the Saviour will be known. But this is the Christ, this is the Lord, this is the Messiah, the one that comes, the anointed one. And it's also interesting to note in verse 13 and 14 that the choir of angels is singing, singing about peace. And it's not the same as the emperor, the Roman emperor that would be uh, receiving, oh, you know, Roman emperor, you're so great, in a choir singing to the Roman emperor. No, no, this goes beyond that. This goes one up beyond that because it's actually not just to the Roman emperor who brings us peace. Actually, this is peace to the entire earth and this is peace that goes to the heavens, glory to the highest of heaven. This is peace to those who are acting with humility and in line with justice and righteousness. <coughs> and so that's this celebration that we see. So we've got radiation, we've got celebration. And now we want to look at this incarnation a little bit. We have a humble Messiah and a call to humility. And then, what is that actually mixed with? That's mixed with verses 17 and 18. This humility then comes and leads to an anointing of our own self that is actually then we are the ones that are going out and sharing. Just at the bottom of Isaiah 61, we are planted as oaks of righteousness. We are anointed to go out and share, as we saw. And so we get these passages that emphasise this incarnation. We've got John 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. We've got Philippians 2, verse 6, uh, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. But then actually in Philippians, it doesn't just stop with Christ's humility. It continues on in Philippians, in Philippians 4, verse 5, it says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. Does anybody know the last bit of that passage? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Philippians 4, verse 5, it says this, The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And so this is the idea of this incarnation, God with us. All right, so I don't know about you, but about the time the angels show up is about where my brain switches off. Supernatural, no, this doesn't work for me. I can't, I can't grasp that. Um, and yet here we have the shepherds were given a sign and the virgin will be with birth and you'll find a line in the manger. Um, common thing back in the day for if there was a prophet who said, this is what's going to happen, then along with that prophetic voice of this is what's going to happen, he's actually going to be given a sign. Now the good news is that Bethlehem was probably only about 400 people there. 400 people in amongst that small town at the time. Which means that if I was a shepherd and I wanted to confirm this sign instead of thinking that I had a crazy dream, 
Actually, I'm going to confirm it by actually driving myself down to local Bethlehem, and I'm going to look in every single house and just say, hey, by the way, do you have a baby lying in your manger? And actually, that is a great way for them to test and see that actually I didn't just dream that. That wasn't a dream, it actually happened. And so they did, they went down, and you know what they did after that? They checked. They actually said, you know what, this is my faith step. This, is, this comes on to me now. I've had something that I think God has said to me. What do I do with this? And it's not just one shepherd, it's the shepherd. And they said, you know what, we're going to take this faith step. We're going to do this faith and faithfulness, this down-to-earth people doing these down-to-earth things. I think God is telling me to do this. I'm going to engage with that. I'm going to test and see if the Lord is good. I'm going to engage with this process. I'm going to see if there's actually a baby lying in a bucket of hay. And so they do. And what happens? They see it. And they're amazed. They're going, hang on a second, this is crazy. And then you get Mary's response to this. And I think this is where actually I'm at. Is this verse 20? Jump to verse 20 now. Mary's response. What does it say? Is it verse 20? Mary kept all these things in her heart and pondered. This is where I'm at. This is what faith means to me, right? Faith means for me. Hang on a second. I think God is saying this to me. I'm going to enact my spiritual faith muscle. I'm going to step out in faith. I think this is what God wants me to do. So I'm going to move to do it. We've got the shepherds doing that. But then what do we do? We keep pondering over. We keep searching out what God has for us in amongst it all. It's actually, this is building a healthy spiritual formation. This is where we want to get to. Mary pondered these things in her heart. Mary treasured, 19. Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen, which were just as they had been told. Mary's response reminds me of um, Peter's response. Um, Uh, questioned by Jesus um, and he says Lord I believe but help me with my unbelief how can, a, how can our saviour come into the world like this Lord I believe help me with my unbelief we skipped right over Jeremiah I'm sorry for that but let me, let me bring this into me I love Jesus' claim in Luke the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, that anointed word, that Messiah word, to proclaim good news to the poor. This isn't just a, um, a one-off thing that's happened. This is something that's been looked forward to for 700 years from Isaiah, 600 years from Jeremiah, and now it's come real uh, for the people at this time, for Mary and Joseph, for the shepherds. This is the celebration that they were looking for. This is the joy that they were looking for. This is the time to actually engage because actually what it means is peace on earth. It means justice. It means a king that isn't just, you know, oh, I'm a fancy Roman emperor. It means a true king and one that I can engage with. The, um, the passage in Jeremiah had the promise of I will be your God and you will be my people. A king that walks with his people, a king that walks amongst And what we've got is that in us. If you call yourself a Christian today, then Christ is in you. It's a beautiful gift. And you can be that to others this Christmas. It's not just for those that are religiously unfit. You can engage this if you want. 
engage that faith muscle. Say, actually, I believe that Christ is in me, and now I can move forward and engage my faith muscle. And so to conclude, you know, this Jesus, this meek and mild Jesus, didn't need to use his power to zap Herod, because he actually had an angel army that could have done that. Um, we've got the lenses that we have that we need to put aside to actually see true Jesus and true humility. We've got the fact that the Jews have been waiting for this for centuries for it to come to happen. And then we've got our own response. What does this incarnation mean for us? And then what does it mean for me to then incarnate into our community and into our world? As we finish, um, remember in Isaiah 61 at the bottom of that video there, we have new clothes, right? And to this people have promised new clothes, a turban and oil and anointing and so on and so forth. There's a uh, quote by a doctor that I read online as I was researching this. Um, they said this, the point of this incarnation is not to distance Jesus from us, you know, Jesus is separate, Jesus radioactive, but rather the opposite. The incarnation asks us to see ourselves as the image and likeness of God, anointed, planted to enact righteousness. Let me repeat that. The point of the incarnation is not to distance Jesus from us, but rather the opposite. The incarnation asks us to see ourselves as the image and the likeness of God, anointed just as Christ was anointed, planted just as Christ was planted in his time at that point, but then also planted in us, and to enact righteousness, the righteous that we can enact, but relying on those angel armies. It's good. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are just so in awe of you that you would empty yourself in a sense. Lord, that you would enter into flesh, Lord, that you would go through the process of understanding what it is to be human. Lord, to understand um, the pain, to understand the joy. Uh, Lord, your mind uh, is so much bigger than our mind. Lord, we are just so grateful for you coming at Christmas. Lord, we are grateful for your engagement with us as humanity. Lord, we are grateful that you decided to go through this process, even if it meant that you had to come into the world in this way, but then also leave the world in a way that is not befitting of you. Lord, help us to pick up our own cross this Christmas. Lord, help us to be humble as we engage with our family, Lord, as we engage with our community. Lord, let us share this celebration with the rest of the world. Lord, true justice, true peace come to us in the form of Jesus. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Church.